All right, so uh, that's great. So we, we we finished at uh, your nomination, I believe, um, Mr. Weisleder. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So so all right. So so let's move on to uh, to some 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 policy. We love talking about policy. So mm -hmm. uh, you push you push for free university, free childcare, twenty dollar minimum wage that you already mentioned, and uh, you promise to pay for all of this by quote balancing the budget on the back of Conrad Black. Is that right? <laughs> That's a slogan. Uh, it'll take right. more than one. It'll take more than one Conrad Black. In fact, he's he's not such a big player uh, lately. Uh, but uh, there, there's a billionaire class, um, and right. uh, that, that th there's no shortage of cash. Uh, there's mm -hmm. no shortage of wealth, socially produced, in this economy. It's just that it's socially produced, but but um, privately owned. Mm -hmm. that, that's what's got to change, and we'll be able to address uh, the major problems of, the, of, of, of society and the world. Um, most, you know, European countries have a free post-secondary post education. Uh, so why can't Canada, a member of the G7, mm -hmm. uh, do the same? No, absolutely. And Darg yeah, so there's enough money, and not only that, I mean, we're publicly funding right now, even now, subsidizing education despite the fact that most people are end up working for the private corporation. So we're funding and we're educating the people that they then use to generate private wealth. Um, and now, although they would love to run their own private universities as well, because then they make money on top of that. So the solution what is, you ask for. exactly the solution under the auspices of a centrally planned economy, we would love for people to go to school. Why, why would we put any barriers to that? The people that go to get educated in a centrally planned economy are then people that can contribute back to the centrally planned economy. And there are tons of people that are willing and want to impart and teach other people. It's a very social thing to do. But instead, we have a system where we create barriers where only some people can get education, meaning that there's a certain crust of people within the working class that are kept even from that possibility of a better life. And they're disproportionately going to be black, indigenous, queer, uh, migrants, undocumented workers, disabled people, people with mental health struggles. So that's part of then the division in society to divide up the working class along these other boundaries. And then the people that do get to go, well, they're going to be taught only how to be the best worker possible. And you're seeing that with Doug Ford in Ontario. I apologize for your Quebec audience, but we're both situated in Ontario. We're going to appeal mostly to the examples we know. But under Ford, again, post-secondary education was cut, which means that now we have the first publicly funded university that's declaring bankruptcy, Laurentian. And with that, you have a big, like that, you know, is one of the only universities in Canada, or in Ontario rather, that had courses in French. There's a big French-speaking population up in Northern Ontario. And part of the restructuring means all the programs like humanities are being cut. It's mostly just going to be engineering and business remaining from what I understand. Things that are then going to make people available to go to work for the banks and help them make a lot of money. So even in our publicly funded system right now, everything is uh, organized to benefit the private class above all, to give people the skills not to help their fellow worker, but to make as much money as possible. Why does marketing exist as a major in university is beyond me. It's literally teaching people the skills to then convince people to buy more. If, if you need something, you're just going to buy it. So yeah, free education for everybody, but doesn't mean like we produce the wealth. It just means it's going back to funding things that we want and need. And if this was put to a democratic vote right now, I imagine most people would say yes. 
I actually, I guarantee you it would pass, but that's never going to come to a vote because of our leaders right now. Right. So actually one of the, another policy that was proposed by the NDP during the 2019 election that was pretty popular, uh, it was the wealth tax. And mm -hmm. uh, MP Peter Julian said that it would bring massive revenue. So explain mm -hmm. the me mechanics of, of how a wealth tax would work because it often flies over people. Because when you're taxing income, you're taxing earnings, right? And when you're mm -hmm. taxing wealth, you're just, ta you're just taxing a pile of cash. So explain mm -hmm. how the mechanics of it would work. Barry? Well, well there are a number of taxes that should increase uh, very, very significantly. And then there are some problems associated with uh, a capital flight that have to be addressed as well. Mm -hmm. So first of all, uh, we do need to increasingly, we need to uh, um, tax income at the upper levels, uh, much, much more than we do. Um, secondly, uh, we, need to we need to eliminate uh, concessions, like the so-called entertainment concession that big corporations use to purchase um, suites at the uh, Rogers Stadium and other sports venues and other venues generally. Uh, there, should be, there should be no concessions of this kind. Um, we need to tax wealth, uh, and that is, as you suggest, uh, Romar, as you suggest, uh, is a separate category. Uh, so uh, how much do you need to live uh, comfortably? I'm not saying you know whether comfortably is a good uh, and sustainable category, but let's just say uh, we use that term. Um, how would a million dollars do? Let, let's, mm -hmm. let's double it. No, let's triple it, $3 million. Anything in excess of $3 million should revert to society. Mm -hmm. So we, we would tax that 100% above that level. It, it, you, could, you could easily make the argument that, that the, um, the threshold uh, should be much lower. But let, let's, let's be generous socialists. Uh, so you need to tax wealth, and you need to tax income, and you need to eliminate perks for the private sector, for the mm -hmm. economic elite for the aristocracy of the economy. You need, you, we need to do that. Now, what, what about these offshore accounts? Well, you know, um, they need to be reined in. Uh, they need to be blocked. Uh, if a person has an offshore account and they're not willing to disclose what's in it, and they're not willing to pay taxes that they should, that they have in fact offshored enormous amounts of wealth, not to the benefit even of the recipient country, but just mm -hmm. to, to deprive people in our society, then they should go to jail. And we'll say, okay, you stay in jail until you disclose, until you bring back this plunder, until you contribute uh, the, you know, uh, the wealth that you've managed to amass uh, that results from the, uh, the uh, surplus value generated by generations of workers. Oh, you're not willing to do that? Okay, well, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll be spending a lot of time where you are right now. Mm -hmm. Um, so our so that, comrade in the United States, just to jump in, Barry, uh, Jeff Mackler, so we have a sister party in the States, Socialist Action USA, that was part of his presidential platform in 2020, I believe was 100% wealth tax above maybe 5 million in his case, where again, the idea is no one's wanting with $5 million, and in fact, no one earns, earns, generates more than that in their lifetime. The only way you're amassing that level of wealth is by, you know, exploiting wage slaves by exploiting people that need to sell their labor to survive in society. They're the ones generating your wealth. Jeff Bezos is not working in the Amazon uh, warehouse facilities. He just owns everything. And based on how hard the workers work, he gets more and more money while the workers themselves live in their cars, can't afford yeah. health insurance, 
And if they try and unionize, heaven forbid, Jeff Bezos will send in his union busters while then booking a flight to space. The fact that people can fly to space as private citizens on the wealth that they've amassed from the working class is an argument in favor of a wealth tax. If there's a society where people can't afford insulin because people that privately own insulin, people like right now, literally in society, there's like 300 people who are the shareholders of these companies that own insulin and they're that they own it. That's their creation, supposedly, even though not a single one of them is a scientist or could even explain how to purify insulin. So if you can have both those things happening in society at once, we failed. Like the government has failed its people and that money needs to be put towards socially expedient projects. Did I, did I mention the inheritance tax? Yeah. So that's the capital gains tax as well. Yeah. So, you know, uh, there, there are capitalists that arise from the petty bourgeoisie and become super billionaires, but there are also a large portion of the corporate elite, uh, got there by inheriting their wealth. Uh, the Irving family comes to mind. (laughs) They're they're real. They're real favorites in New Brunswick, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, the, you know, inheritance should be taxed at 100% above a certain level mm-hmm. in order to ensure, you know, the, the Tsar and the Tsardines are comfortable in their old age. Mm-hmm. No, that's absolutely. So Galen Weston was the uh, tycoon behind uh, Metro and Loblaws and all these stores. I guess, no, Metro is not part of it. Loblaws anyways. So he just died back in March, and now his his family is still billionaires. And you don't have to – the Walton family with Walmart, they're in three generations now, I think, of just being aristocrats, basically, billionaires off of this family whose model was to move into small towns, undercut any local business, and then you have a monopoly. So at a certain point, billionaires and kings and queens become the same thing. It's inherited power. It's inherited wealth. And they're not accountable to any of us, not one bit, as Jeffrey Epstein and all those people have shown us repeatedly. Okay, speaking of uh, taxing the billionaires and funding uh, more expedient projects, so well, what makes you think that a publicly funded university system would work better than a privately, uh, a private or mostly private one? Well, because it the, because it does. Yeah, no, the privately funded system. If you go to the states, let's say where they have a more. Uh, mature private system it's a system that has then saddled students with billions and billions in debt so a system where the people you are training to gain skills if they're becoming billions of dollars in debt that's just a failed model how is that a a sustainable model so when schools become private the only the bottom line you hear that term a lot but it's true literally the bottom line is to make as much money as possible so that means if you can fire teachers and have one teacher teach what normally three teachers would teach, that becomes a wise business decision. Even though if it was a publicly funded system, the priority would be, you know, maximizing the education experience, making sure that people are learning things that need to be taught in society, making sure that teachers have all the resources they need to be able to do a decent job, meaning that schools fund the mental health resources and the, um, you know, all the other resources that students will need to thrive. It means that there will be subsidized housing for students. Students wouldn't be expected to work when they're in their studies. Uh, And it would be then a system where the curriculum entirely, now this is going a bit further than just a publicly funded system, but in a democratic worker-run society, 
there would be, you know, centrally planned ideas around the curriculum. Wow, this pandemic really revealed that we need more people working in the medical system. Let's make sure that we increase enrollment for this. We need more people in this area. And that might mean offering fewer positions for things like marketing, things that don't benefit society. <laughs> so you, it's about shifting these things. But again, in a private system, uh, they're trying to maximize income. Also, what that means in Canada, because our systems here really now are, they're not even public anymore. A lot of the money is coming from partnerships with private corporations and the funding keeps getting cut that the people installed to run our so-called public universities in Canada are people that are trying to maximize uh, the assets. So University of Toronto, which is where I'm at right now, currently finishing grad school, uh, they've now based their almost model on going to India and China, recruiting international students because their tuition isn't regulated. So same education, or in some cases worse education, but they pay 10 times the amount. That for them is a wise business choice. That would not be the case in a publicly democratic university. Okay, speaking of uh, education, educational quality in pub public universities. So uh, what we see in Quebec here is we have a cap on the tuition for domestic students at least. So mm -hmm. uh, however, we see that there is a correlation between how Quebec's university ranking decreased throughout the years with how the government funds the university system. For instance, uh, from uh, 1968 to 2012, the tuition increased 300%, while the inflation rate mm -hmm. increased by uh, 557%. Uh, so with the okay. tuition being kept in check by the government, the university started to resort to other ways of of saving or making money, such as decreasing the quality of education, for instance, uh, by increasing mm -hmm. the class sizes. So what, what is your take on that and um, how that private uh, university system, for instance, in the States have much higher rankings than public uh, university system, for instance, in Europe or in other parts of the world? So the thing with these rankings is they're being published by, again, the mouthpieces of the capitalist class. They love to focus on rankings. U of T loves to tout that they're 15th or 20th in the world, but they also refuse to divest from the same companies that are committing war crimes in Palestine or that are directly violating uh, United Nations Declaration of Rights for Indigenous People or that are profiting off of climate change. These rankings to me are bunk. They don't mean anything. It's a prestige. The same universities that rank well now are the same universities that were founded, like in the States, by capitalists back in the day. They're places where the wealthiest send their kids, and they're the same places, and slave owners, and they're the same places that have endowments because it's, it's where the billionaires' kids go. So these rankings, you know, I'm more concerned about what percentage of your students die of suicide. U of T keeps that public, a private. They don't reveal that. If you're a school that has a lot of students dying of suicide, I'm sorry, I don't care what your ranking is. You're failing your people. I care more about the debt that the students are incurring when they go to your school. I care more about how many of your students are currently homeless because that percentage is something like five to 10%, even in Canada. What percentage of your students are sexually assaulted on campus and then have no recourse for it? And then what percentage of your students are taught things that they can then use to benefit society? So. What you showed with me in Quebec is that they've made and made sure that schooling is accessible. If a private school has a better ranking, yeah, it's only accessible to the kids of aristocrats and billionaires. It just maintains the inequality and it's going to maintain racism and sexism and, and homophobia and transphobia in society because it's exclusively uh, for these wealthy, privileged people that are going to be predominantly white. Um, 
I don't like these rankings as a way of judging if our society is going well, just like in the same way, I don't look at Forbes to see who's the best human. If Jeffrey Bezos is the wealthiest human, doesn't mean he's the best human. It means he's the most ruthless human. And that's the same thing when it comes to which uh, universities rank the highest. They're just the most ruthless. I would add to that only one thing, and that is concentration of resources. Yeah. If you concentrate resources uh, to deprive uh, the majority and to benefit um, a, a well-funded minority, you're going to produce um, a higher quality of whatever objectives you have to meet. Uh, so, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, wealthy, wealthy, you know, abundantly endowed universities, uh, which which charge very high um, tuitions, are are going to not only attract the elite, they're going to benefit the elite, and they're going to produce. They're going to attract, uh, I guess, some of the best faculty, at least the faculty who care not only about excellence, uh, academic excellence, but also care about um, the pocketbook. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'll give you an analogy. It's not that far-fetched. Uh, uh, <clears throat> some people wondered um, for, for a long time, you know, how the, you know, how Israel can be so rich and the surrounding Arab countries so poor. Well, because it, <laughs> Israel's an apartheid state that is subsidized to the tune of four to six billion dollars a year by Washington and the Pentagon. Um, so, you know, you can, if you pour enough money into any desert, you can have an oasis. But the question is, do we want, uh, you know, a concentrated oasis as opposed to raising the uh, the standards for all the people of a region or for or, or all the people of the world? And that that's a policy choice. So, you know, uh, we, um, uh, we don't, we don't accept these, um, these ratings as, as Daniel said. Uh, so eloquently, and we and and uh, we we think we're really looking in the wrong direction to affirm um, uh, a poisonous corporate agenda. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, we'll get to foreign policy. You mentioned uh, uh, Israel uh, a bit later, but uh, before then, Daniel. Though I, I don't look, I don't, I'm not someone who gets who gets offended by these tough type of things. But you you mentioned how uh, the children of the upper class in the aristocracy goes to all these private <laughs> private schools. Look, mm -hmm. I'm I'm up high school and up. I'm privately educated, and me and Henry we both go to a private school right now. Like Marinopolis College is a is an elite Anglophone college in in Quebec, right? So um, you know we're we're both I guess uh, part of the of these people that you condemn so so mm -hmm. hardly. I guess. No, no, you misunderstood me. Uh, the fact that the billionaires go to private school doesn't mean that non-billionaire kids don't go to them. It just means that the billionaire kids aren't going to the state college. So you're, you misinterpreted what I said. Um, there will be some trickle-down effects, but that's all it's going to be is a trickle-down effect. You're going to have a university, like Barry put, that can be an oasis in a small area. And it also means that if you come from a family that might be even then petty bourgeoisie, not you know the sons and daughters or children of, of landowners and and uh, corporation owners, but rather the sons and daughters and children of you know, lawyers and dentists and doctors, or even then working class people uh, who sacrifice so much to give their kids a better opportunity. Yeah, you'll have those people. And then there's scholarships and other things. They, you know, part of what they sell at these schools is the experience, the worldliness of it. So if that meant that everybody there was a, uh, a Kennedy, then that wouldn't work either. They, they reserve you know, a number of spots. Uh, for people that come from a diverse range of backgrounds as well. But 
by and large, they're going to be sustained by the endowments of the wealthy parents and graduates of these programs. I'm not very familiar with the school you all go to, but if you were offended by that, then I apologize. No, 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 no. You don't. You know, you need to apologize. I'm not. I'm not offended at all. It's just I found it really fu funny when you said that because myself, I, I had that that prejudice before going to to private school about you know these snob elitist because I in elementary school I was pub I was in public school right so when I went to private school I I went to a lot with a lot of kids who were educated privately from elementary school starting in elementary school and mm -hmm. yeah a lot of them were extremely from like extremely wealthy backgrounds but when I went to private school I realized that not everyone is from an extremely wealthy background a lot of people were like me from a you know a, a fairly uh, modest background uh, who worked very hard to get where they are and yeah. were. You know, and, and I felt that by my my attitude, I was maybe undermining their efforts as well. You know, that's why when you when you said it the way you said it, I feel like a lot of people have that kind of attitude, and it kind of undermines the the efforts that a lot of kids put in to to get into these schools, right? Sure. No, there's a lot of uh, why not, hard personal why not put effort. those efforts. Yeah, I'm sorry. Why not, put those effort, why not put those efforts into the public system? Why not? Why not say that uh, you know in, instead of private health care? We need a better public health care system rather than mm -hmm. private education, which generates a high level of excellence for a select few. Why not have a more excellent public education yeah. system? You know? and, and, and rather than allowing corporations to benefit from you know, the education that is partly subsidized in terms of the private schools or wholly subsidized in terms of the public schools, why not say that uh, we're all going to benefit from the knowledge that is generated by a public system that a, by by public, uh, you know, uh, economic system, mm. a democratically controlled, and economic system in harmony with nature. I mean, how mm. many years do we have left before it's too late? Yeah. So as socialists, we don't really begrudge working class people's individual choices because that's not how anything's going to change. We're here offering our analysis on the entire education system, on the entire state of Canada, and then indeed capitalism in general. So the particulars, if you get bogged, bogged down in people's personal stories and in the particulars about, well, here's one counter example, you're going to get lost in the leaves of the forest. But when you take a step back, you really see, wow, this system really does not benefit the majority. In fact, it condemns the majority of people to a life of living paycheck to paycheck only for the climate Armageddon to show up on their doorstep one day, destroy their home, and then they're going to be part of a caravan just trying to find fertile land somewhere. So we're, <laughs> we, we anticipate big picture stuff and we organize around big picture stuff. Uh, then back to the big picture stuff. So as we said, uh, because so Quebec's university system, even with a, even with private university or colleges, the tuitions are capped and we see the decreasing educational mm -hmm. quality. So what is your take on that? And uh, given how that... What is your metric of decreasing education quality? For instance, the class size is increased or the equipment yes. gets uh, gets uh, get less yes. um, repaired or less new equipment is bought for yes. educational students. Yes. So I would say generally that's probably uncoupled. Uh, to Quebec because the class sizes are increasing throughout Canada, whether or not tuition is kept in check. So I imagine, although I don't have the numbers in front of me, if you look at Quebec and Ontario, if the class size increase has been the same, yet only in Ontario tuition has increased by 10 to 20 fold, then I would still prefer the Quebec system because at least it's accessible to a broader range of people, irrespective of how much money their parents made. Um, now, if you can find that it's actually 
not the case and that Ontario with a more uh, austere system where education funding has been cut and tuition is allowed to increase. So I think that's been your argument. In Quebec, the schools have been uh, prevented from bringing in enough revenue because they can't increase tuition. And whereas in Ontario, they're allowed to increase tuition. So ideally, the, the education hasn't been diminished. But in reality, the, it's getting worse here as well. Uh, what I would say for Quebec and what we'd want from Ontario as well is a reverse to the education cuts. And in fact, more incre uh, uh, investment in education, like we've already talked about before, based on a wealth tax. Uh, we need way more money in education. Education is one of the things that you can't misspend almost. We need people who have the abilities to tackle the problems of climate change, who can tackle the problems of the pandemic, and that can tackle the problems of organizing our society to meet human needs. So education is something I would never, ever cut. We should be fighting for free tuition and to make sure that education quality doesn't increase. That means more funding for education. And yeah. then at that point, you don't have any of the problems you're dealing with. And I, I'd like to add just one point about the Quebec uh, post-secondary system. The reason why it, it is historically among the lowest uh, tuition rates uh, for public uh, post-secondary schooling in North America is because the students of Quebec go on strike about once every 10 years. Yeah, we don't they do have that. A they have a mass movement. They have a mass movement which um, not only shut down university sector in Quebec, or what was it, in five or six years ago? Um, I remember I, I drove a bunch of comrades to demonstrations in Montreal to show them how much we support them. Um, but um, the, uh, the resilience of the Quebec student movement shut down not only that sector with the professors and with the support workers, but virtually shut down Montreal. Uh, there were demonstrations of a quarter million people in support of the students. It was a very popular movement. That's why, after raising the tuition to, to a certain degree, uh, the PQ government did this, um, it, the level was capped. Mm -hmm. But it should actually have been reduced mm -hmm. and moving towards a free post-secondary education system. That's what the overwhelming majority, especially in Quebec, did. Now, what's happening now in Newfoundland, Labrador? Uh, the Andrew Fury government is doing what what it, what it calls um, a, a reset, and they announced that the tuition at Memorial University in St. John's is going to rise from two thousand five hundred dollars a year to six thousand dollars a year. Uh, what impact do you think that's going to have on you know the sons and daughters of Newfoundland? You know, it means they're going to be excluded. Uh, mm -hmm. Is the university going to close? No, they'll find students some of them from abroad, who will pay much more than $6,000, especially in their professional faculties, much more they'll spend, and the university will, will, you know, will, will lumber ahead. But it just means that uh, one class, the majority class in society, will be punished. Well, the, the, these priorities are upside down. I, mm -hmm. would, I, I would cut the Canadian military. I would get Canada out of NATO. I would stop subsidies to, uh, to the- um, Oil and uh, gas oil and gas and, and even the nuclear sector because the, the, the waste that comes from um, uh, nuclear energy generation uh, it has, uh, has a half-life of forever. Mm -hmm. So we, we need to reset the priorities and then we'll see that we're able to have excellence as well as accessibility.
Now, speaking of student protests, there were a massive student protests back in 2012 opposing the tuition increase brought in by the liberal government of Jean Charest uh, here in Quebec. Uh, so after nine months of strikes, students did get the tuition uh, hike canceled by the new PQ government of Pauline Marois. Um, so based on what was previously discussed and given the nine months of strike, do you think it was a worth, worthwhile accomplishment? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of the great, it's something that we should celebrate. We should have a, a, a day uh, cross country to celebrate the Quebec student movement. It, sh it should mm -hmm. be a holiday. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we, we need to write it into the history books. Mm -hmm. We need to venerate the leaders. In fact, one of the leaders uh, became uh, a leader of Quebec Solidaire and now has a seat in the uh, Quebec National Assembly. Yeah. But anyway, it's not about leaders and it's not about electoral um, uh, privilege. It's, it's about recognizing a very simple thing on which the socialist movement firmly stands. And that is, you know, um, politics uh, and the future of society depends on what we do collectively. Mm -hmm. History is not made by by single great individuals. Primarily, it's made by masses of masses of people in motion, and that's how we will have a better healthcare system, a better public education system, a better public housing system, and we will address the problems that are confounding the uh, the world and threaten to destroy human civilization today. All right. So for the next question, we're going to get a bit into the you know electoral politics side of it. Uh, so the NDP, obviously, in the last in the in the last ten years, you know, in terms of seats in the in federal parliament, has seen a, a massive decline from a, a high of 109, I think, under Jack Layton in official opposition, and and now you're at 24, I think. Uh, so I, I want to get into into a into a broader kind of bring into like a broader perspective. So a lot of the left's power in general historically has relied. On the working class, right? On working class votes, but in the recent years, um, on the provincial level, especially, there's been like a, a shift, and also in in other countries where the traditional working class. Uh, so we're talking, you know, mainly. I'm, I'm making a generalization here, but mainly no college degree, blue collar, socially probably more conservative. They have moved moved to the right and voted more to the right, while incre an increasing number of professional managerial class, so you know, college educated, white collar, social liberal people have moved to the left. And who exactly is the NDP Socialist Caucus? And does the NDP have a problem with its base? Well, I just want to highlight just generally in society, we're moving towards populism in general, whether it's left wing or right wing populism. So as the contradictions of the status quo, capitalism become more and more apparent, people are looking for big changes and some of those people are fighting for a society that's fundamentally reoriented towards the needs of the many and then some people get drawn into white supremacy patriarchal uh very reactionary politics where it's let's boost spending for the economy let's cut down immigration let's make sure that canada as a relatively privileged nation maintains its wealth and continues to benefit exactly the people it's been benefiting for millennia so you you do get that shift. I, I generally reject the division of blue collar, white collar. It's people that sell their labor and people who don't. Uh, but you do see that there are going to be certain people, uh, depending on their material conditions, that are going to be drawn into populist politics on either side of the aisle. And we've seen that in the NDP Socialist Caucus, where we have people coming from what you've described as a more white collar background. And we have people coming in uh, who are union people who work in the shops and who are custodians and what would perform more general blue collar work. And honestly, when it comes to within our party, 
there's no difference between the two, except for their own individual material conditions. Uh, but Barry can highlight more <laughs> what's happening with the NDP as they try and waffle around. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Jack Layton and the high water mark of 100 and, um, is it 109 seats. Uh, that, that that was the result of the uh, federal election in was it uh, 2011. Mm -hmm. um, so what happened after that? Well, Jack Layton died sadly. Um, I don't regard him as an icon, but he was you know a decent person uh, who centralized the party and re and relied increasingly on. Um, opinion polls and uh, centralized uh, campaign decisions. And that really opened the, 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 the doors to um, candidate selection rather than candidate election um, uh, nomination by the rank and file. That being said, the person who succeeded him was a, um, a former liberal cabinet minister from Quebec. Remember? Tom Mulcair? Tom Mulcair. And, and how did Tom Mulcair campaign in the election that followed uh, the demise of Jack Layton? Uh, he had an opportunity uh, to, to, to deepen the eclipse of the Liberal Party and to, and to defeat the Conservatives. And his campaign leitmotif was uh, balance the budget, balance the books, uh, address the budgetary shortfall. When you consider the budgetary shortfall today, you know you, you laugh when you look back at uh, 2011. But um, that presaged a, a, um, a platform of austerity, neoliberalism, and folks don't need in Canada to have two liberal parties. One is quite enough. The NDP has to differentiate itself to the left of the Liberal Party. And when when Tom Mulcair ran on a on a platform of his own making in favor of balancing the books, it meant that it was easy for Justin Trudeau, remember that ad of him on the escalator coming up higher and higher uh, to the top saying that he's going to provide Canadians what they need, uh, national childcare was one of the promises. Um, the NDP looked like it was um, a bad version of the Liberal Party. So the NDP momentum was squandered. It was squandered, it was a giveaway. Uh, it's not that people turn to the right, it's that the people who had voted for the NDP were disappointed, mm. disappointed that the party of the working class had become the party of the petty bourgeoisie or even worse. Um, so they figured, well, if, if, if I've got one Tory party and two liberal parties, I'll vote for the liberals because they've had more experience screwing us. <laughs> you know, so oh. that's that's what happened to the NDP. The orange mm -hmm. crush was crushed by Tom Mulcair. Yeah, and what it wasn't based on there. anything. Any success that Jack Layton had wasn't on anything fun. It was disillusionment. And so they had an opportunity to actually show that they were going to propose concrete changes. And then Tom Mulcair didn't. And now Yogamit Singh has brought it back just a tiny bit. And the NDP Socialist Caucus, we exist not only to connect with other like-minded comrades within the NDP and to build up socialist action as a truly revolutionary party, but we're also there to push the NDP, the only mass working party in North America, to the left. And we've we've had accomplishments in that. And more and more, the NDP is caving, even if it's a little bit, to the pressure that is coming from below. Okay. Mm, but I mean, re realistically, last election, didn't Jagmeet Singh basically lose half the caucus? Yep. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, because you're still not because going he, far enough. To if he had followed the policies that we recommended, uh, he would not have done worse. He would likely have done better. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, Henry, you want to ask the next question? Yeah, yeah. Like obviously, the lab has been very active online in recent years. Uh, we've seen many content creators, mostly American like Vouch and Hasanabi, but also Canadians like David Do comment on politics. Uh, however, there have been a lot of open flare-ups uh, between left-wing uh, media personalities, with the most recent one being a war between left-wing comedian Jimmy Dore and his former employer, The Young Turks, uh, which is the largest left-wing YouTube show. So as this sort of public drama is non-existent on the right, uh, has airing uh, Dirty Laundry always been a feature of the lab? or is it a new phenomenon that has been emerging online? Well, online, so we have to talk a little bit about the fact that what we're trying to build here is not just a movement, but a movement structure. So honestly, these dramas that you've mentioned, I'm not aware of. Barry, are you aware of these? Well, the, the, this, is in the, this is in the American um, uh, cybersphere, right? I mean, even on the Canadian side, so we have our own debates internally. So Socialist Action, for example, or the NDP Socialist Caucus, we're democratically centralist, meaning debate, uh, dem democracy and debate. And we set up four months every year for as much debate as we need on anything that we can possibly think of and things that we've previously decided upon. And then we vote on it. And what we vote upon, we do. And that's the best way to build up not only a movement, but the structure around the movement. The online sphere absent these large structures is not a great place to have these conversations. There's no accountability uh, to a grassroots place. You can have people making the same arguments ad nauseum over and over again, and you can have people arguing in a lot of bad faith. Because it's, and that's also assuming that all the people engaged in these debates are doing it to further knowledge rather than just generating controversy so that they can grow their YouTube channel or their podcast or whatever it is. So we need to move away from simply being content with having debates on Twitter or in the YouTube comment section or on Reddit. And we need to build structures where you can have structured debate with pre-agreed upon rules and you have the means of you know, making sure that there are no sexist and derogatory attacks on each other. And you're accountable to the people in that structure. And then when you make a decision, there's a history of that decision and how it was made. And it can be revisited as material conditions changes or as we learn more. Because, I mean, we're like Barry has mentioned, the socialist movement is not a museum. It's a living structure. <laughs> it's a living movement. So we do sometimes obviously have to engage in the online space because we need to get our ideas out there and it's one way to do it but where we can we prefer to meet people in person we prefer to sell people our newspaper in person to host documentary film festivals in person to go to rallies and protests and marches in person and then when there are groups that we grow more closely with to then dialogue with them because that is the way we can identify where do we disagree where do we agree and is there any common ground for us to organize together and build up not only the movement, but the structure? Honestly, I would not spend <laughs> uh, or waste my time having these aimless debates uh, through Twitter because they're not going to lead to anything constructive. And, and by the way, um, in case uh, some people watching this haven't noticed, uh, it's not like the left is, has a monopoly on airing its dirty laundry. 
Have you heard of, have you heard of Fox TV? <laughs> Fox is at war with MSNBC uh, almost on a hourly basis, never mind on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, there, there are flame wars on the American right, uh, Trump supporters versus liberals. Um, have you heard of Maxine Bernier? Um, you know, he was a cabinet minister in the Harper government, uh, and they had a flame war, and then he formed the People's Party of Canada, which got less than, you know, 0.1% of the vote. Well, less than 2% of the vote anyway. I don't remember the exact figures, but I know it was very small. And now what's happening in the Green Party? Yeah. Um, I don't consider the Green Party part of the workers' movement. No. I mean, it's it's slightly to the left of the Liberal Party, but it's it's a capitalist party. And you know, talk about airing dirty laundry. <laughs> I mean, uh, the Green Party has everybody beat. Yeah. So the, the, I, I reject the suggestion that the uh, <clears throat> the left is you is is unique in terms of uh, you know um, airing its dirty laundry. I think that the right is much more guilty of doing this. But anyway, it it it's not something that we're interested in doing because we want to change society. And we don't think that society will be changed by replacing, you know, some retrograde personalities with some other personalities, which may prove to be retrograde. Mm -hmm. It's about relying on the strength of the mass movement, the masses in the streets and in the workplace. Absolutely. The, speaking about disagreements and debates, uh, uh, so traditionally left has internal disagreement on tactics. Uh, however, uh, mm -hmm. there has been a lot of disagreements on foreign policy lately. For instance, uh, the UK Labour Party's position on Israel, uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, China, Russia Gate, uh, and of course, uh, the recent protests in Cuba. Uh, so even Nikki Ashton's support for Palestine has earned her an anti-Semitic uh, name. So mm -hmm. where does the NDP's Socialist Caucus stand on these issues? and how much disagreement is there within the uh, anti-socialist caucus about uh, these issues in particular? So when it comes to Palestine, the NDP Socialist Caucus is unanimous in supporting Palestinian rights for self-determination and ending Israeli apartheid. And we put forward motions at the NDP convention that reflected that. And then you're right, there's going to be disagreement on both tactics and even viewpoints on, on certain issues. But I would say the left <laughs> Generally, I mean, we stand behind, we stand against American imperialism and Canadian imperialism, first and foremost. You do have some people that would argue when it comes to, you know, intervention in certain areas that the slogans ought to be different than simply saying America out of Syria or America out of Cuba or America out of Venezuela. Some people also have uh, so much dissatisfaction with the current governments there that they're willing to just say, let them fall if, if they must. But no, I mean, the NDP Socialist Caucus were very resolute that what's happening in Israel is an illegal occupation, it's apartheid, it's genocide, and that needs to end. Barry, you want to talk more? I mean, you're the, <laughs> you've been on the Palestine issue for, for so long. Yeah, we're we're one hundred percent for Palestinian rights, um, mm -hmm. and, and uh, Daniel explained it very very well. Um, we uh, we know that there are disagreements within the NDP, which has over a hundred thousand members and over three million people voting for it. I mean, could it be otherwise? It's a mass party, so there's bound to be different points of view. Mm -hmm. But the NDP uh, contains more pro-Palestine uh, voices, is more pro-working class is more pro-ecology than any mass party in North America. Mm -hmm. um, and we strive to make it consistently socialist. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, we're, we're, we're not in living in fear of uh, debates and division of opinion. We think that that's the oxygen of yeah. the workers' movement. Uh, we need more. We need more discussion, more debate, and we have something to say. Uh, we yes. don't claim that we're always correct. We learn as we go, but we are drawing on a history of 150 years of revolutionary Marxism. So uh, we have a head start <laughs> on the yeah. rest, and we try to bring it to bear uh, more in terms of analytical uh, process. Uh, you, you, you'll, you'll get good policy if you have good analysis, if you use the scientific method. Uh, in all things, so that that that's we 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 consider that's our forte. I hope we live up to it. I don't claim that we are always the best and the 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 the, the foremost, but we try. Yeah. Um, and um, you know the NDP has far to go in terms yes. of uh, being you know a democratic working class uh, party for uh, liberation from the evils yeah. of capitalist oppression and exploitation and the degradation of the environment. But that, that, yeah. that's, that's what we strive to do. And we urge people to join us. Yeah. Because, and, uh, sorry, I'll just conclude on this. Yeah. Uh, we urge people to join us because uh, by building a, a bigger movement, even if we don't win everything we want uh, immediately, we'll move the, the, how do you say, the goalposts? We're gonna move the goalposts yes. to the left. And so, you know, every time we kick a field goal, it's gonna be through those left, goalposts. We're going to rack up some points for progress and yes. not continue to row the boat backwards because the labor yeah. movement leadership and the NDP leadership has been very good at rowing the boat backwards. Yes, and concessions. That, and that's not good. That's not good. We aspire to row it forward yeah. and to change the world. Yeah, we take uh, inspiration from the Canadian Union of Postal Workers who went on strike illegally and won paid maternity leave. We take oh, yeah. inspiration from the general strike in Winnipeg. And, and all these mass struggles, I mean, people forget that when we talk about class warfare, at one point in time, literally unionists would be armed and they would be attacked by the army of whatever you know, nation they were uh, mobilizing in. You had the Battle of Blair Mountain in America with the coal miners. It, it was a legitimate war over working conditions. Now, just because you mentioned Nikki Ashton, we obviously support her from all these uh, slanderous attacks. Criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic. Israel right. is a nation, and it is no more anti-Semitic to criti- criticize Israel than it is uh, sinophobic to criticize the Chinese Communist Party. Where you're criticizing a government apparatus, which we have so many good reasons to criticize. Human Rights Watch, just this year, uh, back in March, released their report, very, very detailed report, saying that Israel is an apartheid state, and has been for basically its entire existence. And the UN has made it very clear that its occupation, it has illegal occupations that it's expanding to this day. They, they're continuing even now with the new prime minister and the ousting of Benjamin Netanyahu, it's continuing. It's, if anything, it's accelerating. So Nikki Ashton, we commend for being one of the few members of parliament to have you know, the backbone to say, this is not okay. And Canada should not be selling weapons to an apartheid state, because that's what we're doing. Just like we shouldn't have been supporting South Africa when they were an apartheid state, we should not be supporting Israel today. But the term anti-Semitism then gets weaponized to try and silence criticism of Israel. And it's really telling then that the people that are most likely to call you anti-Semitic for criticizing Israel tend to be the same reaction right-wing anti-Semites themselves. 
because they're not pro Jewish people. They're not there fighting for religious minorities. They're there fighting to maintain an imperialist base in the middle of the Middle East. Like yeah. uh, Richard Nixon said, what was it? Israel is our biggest aircraft carrier in the Middle East. In the Mediterranean. In the Mediterranean. It's it's a strategic outpost for them. But it's being used a lot. And I'm going to just take a few more moments on this. By U of T, where I'm currently a graduate student, uh, you see uh, the faculty of law and the controversy around Dr. Valentina Azarova. She was hired a position to be the director of their human rights program until a wealthy alumna and judge, current judge and graduate of U of T interceded and said her research on Israel is problematic because it was critical of Israel. So they revoked her job offer because, you know, that was the argument. She's being anti-Semitic and other people trying to support her get slandered with the same thing. You have these anonymous petitions being created to get people fired at U of T if they're supportive of Palestine or critical of Israel. So we need to call this out. It's the um, IHRA definition of anti-Semitism now that's being weaponized. It's the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance or Association. I forget what the A stands for. But some of their examples of anti-Semitism that they propose include specifically questioning the legitimacy of the Israeli state. And we reject that. I mean, let me just add uh, the, this comparison. Um, we are very critical of the government of the United Kingdom. In fact, of the, the state. Uh, known as the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and more. Um, and, you know, the last time I noticed, the United Kingdom uh, is a monarchy. Mm -hmm. And the, the monarch is the head of the Church of England. Mm -hmm. So when we criticize the United Kingdom or, or Great Britain, does that make us anti-Christian? No. Let's take another example, uh, Sri Lanka. It's dominated by a reactionary Sinhalese uh, 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 elite. Um, and we, we remember all too well what happened to the Tamil people in recent years. So to criticize the government of Sri Lanka, does that make us anti-Buddhist? You know, we criticize the Vatican and its policies. Does that make us anti-Christian? We criticize the government in, in Iran, although we defend it against American imperialism and its trade blockade. Uh, does that make us anti-Muslim? No, no. So the, 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 the suggestion that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism is actually anti-Semitism, and not because the Arabs are Semites, but because you know is Israel uh, it, it carries out horrendous acts in the name of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And as as someone raised in a Jewish home, who is a you know a, a, an anti-Zionist Jew today, I am offended by the suggestion that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. It's nonsense. It's poison. We must reject that that notion utterly. Also, just a correction on Iran, it also doesn't mean that we're anti-Zoroastrian. Um, I think the majority of right. <laughs> Zoroastrian. Okay, uh, in very interesting. So actually, before um, the next question, uh, so, something just came up. So uh, so we see the identity politics played a lot lately uh, in, in media. Mm -hmm. And so, so for instance, um, some people saying that uh, disparity between blacks or whites, for instance, isn't due to racism and they get labeled a racist. But for instance, they cite... Um, um, seventy percent of black families are single motherhood, so that's why they are poorer on average than white families. So, would you, in the same logic, would you call them racist? Wait, so I am confused with the the who would be called racist in this example? The people who say that uh, perhaps like family culture would be the reason why uh, there is a disparity. Oh yeah, that's yeah. 
any explanation that isn't uh, systemic in its analysis and instead, you know, uh, calls black people, what, you know, it's, it's racist to say it's anything but systemic at this point. Um, it's actually just Richard Lewontin just died not too long ago. He was an evolutionary biologist and someone who was a big inspiration for me. And he, he rejected the idea of race, just like a lot of socialists and, and scholars would today. There is no biological basis in race. You cannot look at someone's DNA and say they are white or they are black. There's more differences between races, races than there are, there's more difference within a race than there are between races. So there's, there's fundamentally no biological basis for race. So then if you start looking at statistics that say this race dies 20 years earlier, or this race is more likely to be arrested, or this race is more likely to be illiterate, a racist take would be that is because that race is simply not as intelligent, or that race is simply backwards or savage or uncivilized, whatever you want to call them, or it's because their heads are smaller. You know, if you go back to that uh, craniology stuff phrenology, back in the day. Yeah. yeah. Phrenology, yes. Uh, that's all, it, it's trying to obscure the systemic basis. In reality, the black people living in the Caribbean and in North America, they're the descendants of, in many cases, not always, you have also recent migration, they're the descendants of slaves who until 50 years ago couldn't vote couldn't own property, couldn't do so many things and still live in the same segregated neighborhoods. And there's been no, there's been no real reconciliation. There's been no restitution. They've not been given. So even if in the law they're declared equal and there's no, you know, legal way and there still are, it's just, you know, dressed up a little bit more. It's not as apparent. Uh, any, any analysis that doesn't, uh, explain those differences like the ones you mentioned through anything but a lens of systemic racism is itself right because you're denying the reality you're denying the history that went into this mm -hmm. to be colorblind is to be racist because that means you don't pick up on the fact that you know indigenous people are 10 times overrepresented in the canadian carceral system and their children are 10 times more likely to be taken by, you know, protective services. There's but no biological basis for this. It's systemic. I, I agree completely uh, with, with what Daniel said. And I would only add that um, although identity politics arises from the felt experience of oppressed people, identity politics does not lead to uh, an effective solution. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the, the, intersect, the most intersectional phenomenon, socially speaking, in, on planet Earth, is the working class. It encompasses all of the uh, peoples who suffer uh, discrimination, oppression, and exploitation. Uh, the working class together, united, uh, is, is, this, is the sole class capable of leading the transition from the benighted system of capitalism to a brighter tomorrow that's, uh, that uh, socialism, uh, a democratically planned economy in harmony with nature offers. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what we strive for. So. Uh, we, we, we share the concerns of people who, who, who self-identify and who speak to their, their, their experience. Uh, we don't try to deny it or downplay it, but we try to bring together all of the forces that can benefit from the elimination of discrimination and from the um, control of the economy mm -hmm. so that it meets the needs of the vast majority. That's the approach. Yeah. That's the strategic approach. Working class power working class self-organization, workers' revolution.
Absolutely. And just then to add, though, but we're not class reductionists. So we do, again, recognize that there are many, many systems of oppression that are meant to divide up the working class. You can go back to American history where at one point white slaves and black slaves had the same lack of rights. But what that ended up leading to was slave rebellions where white slaves and black slaves cooperated. And that scared the hell out of the slave owners because then you have a massive overwhelming amount of people uprising against you. So then that's when they began giving more rights to white slaves. They allowed it so that after a number of years, you can actually be emancipated and you can own property after a certain amount of time. And that eroded the uh, solidarity between black slaves and white slaves, because now the white slaves thought they were better than the black slave. And they saw that if we just keep in line, we can maintain these small little concessions that the slave owners gave to us and we no longer have to fight alongside our black slaves for complete liberation. And you yeah. see that today as well. Who benefits from transphobia, first and foremost? The capitalists. Because it means you have a working class transphobes now who put their energy towards making sure that people can't use the bathroom that they prefer to use, rather than working together to make sure that we can all live a meaningful life. So we, we recognize and we'll, we'll fight against all those ones, but we fight under the banner of socialism because we recognize the only true liberation can come through economic liberation for all of us. Um, yeah, no. yeah, so actually, and I have to start actually leaving now. So Barry, I trust you can wrap this up, yeah? Yeah, for sure. I just want, I want to mention the podcast, The Red Review Socialist Action. I'm one of the co-hosts on The Red Review. It's a new monthly podcast that recaps the happenings in Canada from a socialist perspective. So if you thought that oh, anything we'll I said made any sense. Below. Absolutely. Okay, it was great meeting you all. Bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye, Tyler. Yeah, so I guess to continue, like, um, so so about socialism, and we, we talk about the head start that you guys have um, in terms of, of uh, the point in history that socialism is at. So uh, I'm, I'm sure you heard the question of uh, it wasn't real socialism before, right? Um, so, for instance, a uh, former socialist. I'm sorry, I don't un I don't understand what you just said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was I was talking that um, I'm sure you heard like uh, it wasn't real socialism before that quote, right? That it wasn't. Real yeah, socialism. it wasn't real socialism. So, for instance, I. Uh, no, well, it couldn't. It couldn't be because socialism in one country is impossible. All you can have is a is a worker state that is more or less democratic, uh, and that strives to fulfill the socialist vision by making the world revolution. So socialism requires the organization of the economy on a world scale, or at least in the most advanced countries, and to you know to end the threat of uh, of, of military intervention uh, against those countries that have broken from the exploitative system. Okay, uh, then speaking of, uh, speaking of internationalism uh, uh, here. Um, so, so back in the 1960s, we see a lot of skirmishes between USSR and China uh, that sort of deteriorated uh, their their um, uh, their relationship. So, uh, so what do you think of the the power play between the 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 rising ruling class in the different previous socialist countries? Well, they they're not they were not classes. They were a bureaucratic elite. Uh, they didn't own property. They 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 controlled the um, the the political system. Uh, and and they encourage people to um, to to support them uncritically, and if they were if they were critical, they were imprisoned. So this was a, a bureaucratic caste, not a new capitalist class, uh, and it resulted from the isolation of the Soviet Union, uh, the, the the arms race, as I mentioned before, uh, 
uh, the um, you know the the, uh, the the wars of intervention, not necessarily on Soviet Union territory, but against the allies of the Soviet Union uh, in its in its spheres of influence. Um, that that for that the working class paid a very heavy price, and that price was known as Stalinism. So um, that was not uh, ever really existing socialism. It was a, a distortion of the of the of the socialist uh, movement and of the socialist uh, goal. Uh, th that's why we hail from the international left opposition, which uh, created uh, the Fourth International, uh, led by Leon Trotsky, who was one of the co-leaders with Lenin of the Russian Revolution, and who rebelled when he saw that the policies of the Communist International were being systematically betrayed. Uh, we saw this uh, time and time again. The Spanish Civil War is just one example, where the um, the Popular Front working class bourgeois government disarmed the uh, the uh, the rebellious workers and and helped Franco uh, um, uh, end the uh, the Spanish Revolution in favor of a you know what was then 30 40 years of dictatorship that followed. So that's that that they, these were crimes against the working class. Uh, Stalinism was um, a tumor in the in 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 the body of the working class. It had to be excised. Uh, it, it it wasn't in time, and so that's why the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, and and why China privatized. And now you have the largest number of billionaires in the world in the so-called People's Republic of China under the Chinese Communist Party. It's not a communist party by any way, by any means whatsoever. Oh, actually, so speaking of China, so China has been uh, one of the most contentious among uh, among those countries. So uh, for, for part of the lab for figures like uh, Danny Haifang uh, from the Black Agenda report is the greatest success story of socialism. But for others, including the NDP, uh, it's a genocidal totalitarian regime. For, for instance, in February, the NDP uh, even voted alongside other opposition parties to denounce the Uyghur genocide in China's Xinjiang province uh, perpetrated by the CCP. All right. So uh, either CCP government that the left should support or um, act, uh, as uh, Mar uh, Marx Blumenthal from the Grey Zone put it, uh, a CIA plot to overthrow yet another socialist government. Well, I think that the imperialists want to control China as they did, um, you know, a century ago and turn it into a, a slave of, uh, of Western imperialism. But the, that, that and they, they, they fear China, which benefited from uh, decades of planned economy uh, to become a, uh, a global uh, production and marketing force. It's, it's because the capitalists are really not in favor of free competition, despite what they say you know, about their economic system. It's not competitive, it's monopoly uh, driven and controlled. Um, we, we, if, if we had a member of parliament, a, a Marxist member of parliament, we would have voted against that resolution to declare um, the, 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 the situation in, 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 the south, in the northwest corner of China's Xinjiang province as being one where there is a genocide. There's no evidence to support the claim that there's a genocide. The Uyghur people suffer discrimination. They are nationally oppressed. China is known for great Han chauvinism and for the oppression of the people in Tibet, uh, as well as the Uyghur people and others. But uh, genocide means, you know, physical liquidation 
by the thousands or millions of a population, uh, which is identified, uh, you know, by, by, you know, by some criteria. And, the, you know, uh, oppression does not equal genocide. Uh, oppression is unacceptable. We support the struggle of the Uyghur people against discrimination, but we're opposed to the campaign being waged by the, um, you know, the Americans and the Europeans with Trudeau's uh, support to vilify China. Uh, we're, we, we, we've campaigned to free um, Wang Mengju, the, the uh, CFO of uh, that large uh, Huawei uh, corporation. Not because we're pro-Huawei, not because Huawei came out of the PLA, but because you know uh, we're we're against the Cold War against China, we're against the Cold War becoming a hot war, uh, we're a nuclear confrontation which could end you know end human civilization for all. So that 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 that's why we um, don't agree with the uh, resolution that Parliament uh, adopted unanimously, except for the Liberal cabinet ministers who abstained on the motion. We don't. We 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 do not do not support the campaign of vilification of China, but we do not, you know, turn a blind eye towards the lack of workers' democracy, the lack of socialism in China, and the discrimination suffered by China's oppressed nationalities. Okay. So all right, uh, we have to we have to wrap this up soon. But I want to you know sneak in a last question that I think that you know is is kind of uh, important. So. Uh, the culture war has polarized a lot of the electorate over the last decade or so. So increasing, increasingly, political opponents stop seeing each other as adversaries and start seeing each other as, as enemies. That's the basic idea. And uh, this year, I'm sure you know uh, Nathan G. Robinson from Current Affairs. He wrote an article criticizing left-wing commentator Crystal Ball for co-hosting a show with conservative Sagar and Jetty that Nathan and other leftists have called a fascist. So if a leftist works with a conservative, are they enabling fascism in their view? And should leftists ever ally with conservatives on issue they agree on? Or are, are, are all conservatives enemies to the revolution in your view? <laughs> well, all capitalists are enemies of the revolution because they don't want to be expropriated and put under uh, democratic workers' control. As far as the media is concerned, you know, we're, we're for um, uh, full democratic dialogue. Uh, we don't seek out allies in the conservative camp. But let, let, let's take an example, um, raising the minimum wage. Or let, let, let's, let's take another example, uh, guaranteed uh, income. There are some red Tories who favor guaranteed income. We give guaranteed income critical support, critical support. We don't, it's not a panacea. But are we in favor of, of people getting um, a, a basic income so they can put a roof over their head and have food on the table and send their kids to school confidently every day. Um, yes, we, we, we think that would represent progress and we would critically support it. Without, and the critical part is, there should be no reduction in um, um, social entitlements, um, subsidies for uh, dental care or, or dr drugs or you know, anything else that is not covered by the existing Medicare system. Um, we are prepared to ally with liberals, conservatives, social democrats, anarchists, I mean, whoever you can imagine, who support basic income, who support raising the minimum wage, who support a democratic policy on Haiti or Palestine or Venezuela or Cuba. We support um, everyone who opposes spending $7 billion on buying a pipeline, which the Trudeau government did recently. We're, we, we, you know, we're prepared to ally with everybody and anybody with whom we can agree on one thing, whatever that one thing is. 
we're for what we call this the united front uh we can unite for one thing in which we agree or a small number of things in which we agree uh, without having to agree on everything else and without denouncing everybody now should radicals debate conservatives well if you have a chance to reach a large audience as we're doing today i hope um then yes we're for we're for debating conservatives so what uh that doesn't mean we collaborate with them we confront their ideas we're happy to do it on every opportunity we have and in fact there are plenty of conservatives in the ndp that we're debating constantly so this is nothing new and i get interviewed uh by cbc television and by other uh, mass media uh, who pose questions that might come from the lips of a conservative. This doesn't trouble me at all. The term fascism should not be, should not be used too loosely. Uh, fascism is not just uh, right-wing populism. Uh, like, I don't think Donald Trump is a fascist. He's an extreme authoritarian right-wing populist. He is profoundly anti-democratic. He's an oppressor and he benefits from exploitation. But fascism is something else. If you study the history of Italy and Germany and some other countries, uh, Spain, uh, you know, Hungary, that, where, where there are active fascist movements now or where they have been in power, fascism arises, you will learn, when the working class threatens to take control of the economy. That's when the ruling class, the liberal rulers and the conservative rulers back the fascist party, which is prepared to liquidate the working class movement to put in concentration camps and to murder labor leaders as well as identified oppressed minorities. That's what fascism is. It's the wholesale slaughter of the left, not just a, you know, a, a pleasant disagreement in the park one day, so, uh, or even the curtailment of democratic liberties by banning organizations and certain ideas. That could pave the way to fascism. Uh, we don't, we, our slogan is no platform for fascists, smash racism. Are we in favor of the government passing a law that outlaws the uh, Proud Boys in Canada? No, no, we don't want to rely on the state and its laws. We are in favor of mass mobilization of the labor movement, NDP activists, social justice uh, people, tenants, seniors, women, gays, against the fascist danger. We want to drive them off the streets, not by relying on some judge in a court applying a law that could be applied just as well against left-wing radicals. No, we're not for that. We're for mass mobilization. You can pretty much make that the general answer to all your questions. How are we going to do this? Through mass mobilization. That's the answer. To curtail fascists, but also to win socialism. And those people who are interested in fighting for, for a more democratic future, a more sustainable green future, um, a, a future based on real workers' democracy, should join us in socialist action. And how to reach us? www.socialistaction.ca. That's www.socialistaction.ca. You can call 647 986 1917, the year of the Russian Revolution. 647 986 1917. And we welcome everyone who's interested in uh, working together for a better world. Uh, we have uh, Socialist Action webcasts every Thursday night. We have one coming up uh, this Thursday, July 22nd. It's called Heat. Heat. DC is on fire. And we have three speakers from British Columbia, including from Indigenous Territory. Um, every Thursday night, we have a different uh, show. And we have some other shows from time to time uh, on, on our platform. You can go to YouTube, 
just type in Socialist Action Canada on YouTube, and you will see over 75 recording, recorded shows there on a wide range of topics, historical and, and contemporary. We invite people to check out our ideas there and to join us. Remember, www.socialistaction.ca. And thanks very much for this opportunity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Barry Weisslater. That was almost like a commercial at the yeah, end yeah. there. Yeah, so Mr. Terry will fix it for that. Yeah. It was a, it was a yeah. non-commercial commercial. Yes, uh, everything everything will be in the description. Yep. Don't worry. Uh, I mean, I guess, I guess uh, to Jen on a casual note, you know, I, every time I talk to, uh, to, I guess, socialists, they always tell me to read Lenin. What is your bookshelf like behind you? Oh, well, you, you, you can see that there's uh, quite a few volumes by uh, Leon Trotsky. Marx, mm -hmm. Engels, Lenin, uh, but but also Clara Zetkin and Rosa Luxemburg. Um, they're great writers uh, today. Uh, many of them contribute regularly to uh, to this publication, uh, Monthly Review. Uh, review. Uh, so I, I urge people to read that. Um, there there are many uh, books books and booklets that we have published, Socialist Action, and you can find them on our website. I won't repeat. <laughs> and um, yeah, um, uh, on Canadian foreign policy, I urge people to read uh, the, the the twelve books published by Eve Engler, E N G L E R. <laughs> have him on the we show. We had him as a last guest, <laughs> like the guest. Yeah. No, two guests ago. Yeah, we had him uh, on the show. I interviewed him too. <laughs> yeah. Great guy. Great guy. So um, yeah. Uh, I would I would say everything from Marx to Trotsky to to uh, to Engler <laughs> to socialist action. I think that's uh, that's good. Uh, you know, um, as my teachers used to say, read, <laughs> yes. read, yes. think, learn, discuss. That's the oxygen of the movement of the future. All right. Thank Thanks you very again. much for yeah, Barry Weisslater. Uh, goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for coming on to the show and uh, yeah, we'll close it off here. Wonderful guys. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye.